right. Well, as you know, we've been <clears throat> going through nuts and bolts this summer, and uh, each of the pastors has been kind of running on a on a track. And uh, my track uh, that I've been running on through the summer has been uh, the church. And so uh, this is my final in, in four messages. This is the fourth and final sermon, uh, Nuts and Bolts of the Church. Uh, we started out talking about how the church was formed, that, that God formed the church, and, and I proposed to you kind of this working definition of the church, uh, that it is this. The church is comprised of people who have been chosen by God, who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus and purposed with displaying and declaring the gospel to the whole world. So that's where we started, with this, this definition of the church that, that God has formed. Uh, then we went into uh, how the church is organized, that the church is organized by a defined membership and not necessarily a like sign on the bottom line kind of a membership, but if you are a Christian, you uh, automatically belong to the church of Christ. Uh, and we talked about how the church is both universal and local, right? Global and local, uh, universal in that it kind of spans, you know, time and history and uh, Lord willing, uh, even out in front of us uh, after we're long gone. So the church is organized under defined membership, under qualified leadership, uh, under the leadership of elders and deacons, uh, and organized under intentional gatherings. And so we, we gather regularly, uh, not only on, on Sundays. Sundays are the thing that, that the most people come to and the biggest thing uh, in terms of attendance that happens throughout the week. But there are, as Rick mentioned, other things that happen throughout the week that are intentional gatherings uh, of the church. Uh, and then we talked about uh, the church gathered and, and what we do specifically uh, on Sunday mornings and kind of the method to our madness and how uh, everything that you see in a Sunday service is pretty intentional on our part, even though it probably doesn't look that way uh, oftentimes, but, but it's very intentional, the things that we do and the reasons why we do them. Uh, and then today, uh, I want to I talk to you about how the church will be preserved. The church we know is flawed. Right? We, we know that the church is flawed, but we also know our Bible tells us that it's here until the end. So, so even in the midst of and in spite of the flaws, the church is here till the end. Um, a pastor I heard once say that it's a shameful thing to be indifferent towards the thing that Christ loves the most. And the thing that Christ loves the most is the church. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 5 that he gave his life for the church. Um, something we've talked about in these last three to four uh, sermons is that we, we've done a disservice to Christians by promoting an, an individualized Christianity. Yes, you do have an individual relationship with Christ, but, but Christianity is very communal, right? And, and Christ died for the church, and I think that sometimes kind of gets lost in the idea that Jesus is just my personal Savior, right? Jesus is, is our Savior, not just my Savior. It's not just me and Jesus, it's us and Jesus, right? And, and so to be indifferent towards this thing that Christ gave his life for uh, is not a good thing. One of the beautiful things about the church is that it is full of broken and flawed people, right? And, and we, we see that on display for better or worse often. Right? We, we even share sometimes, there's not a lot of churches that pass around a mic and, and, and let people share their, their brokenness and their flaws, but we do here uh, because it is a beautiful thing. It's in our brokenness and in our flaws that we see redemption most clearly. Right? If we didn't 
put these things on display, how would we ever see Christ's redeeming work? To say that he's redeemed a sinner like me. At the same time, the most problematic thing about the church is that it's full of broken and flawed people. Right? It's a beautiful thing, but, but at the same time, it's, it's one of the most problematic things as well because it's in our brokenness and in our flaws where we see the ill effects of sin. Right? We, we see it. I'm going to read to you something that, this is going to sound shocking, but bear, bear with me. This is from R.C. Sproul, a giant of the faith. And R.C. Sproul had this to say. It's been said in times past that the church is the most corrupt institution in the world. Now that may seem something of an overstatement and an exaggeration, but it can be true depending on how we evaluate corruption. If we simply look at naked evil, then obviously things like organized crime or neo-Nazis may be deemed far more corrupt than the church. But if we look at, the good, at goodness and evil in terms of the sliding scale of moral responsibility, then yes, the church is the most of corrupt institutions. Jesus said, everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required, Luke 12. If we applied that standard to the church, then we would say that the church of all institutions is the institution that has received the most benefits from divine grace. In light of the manifold benefits and endowments of grace that we have received as the church and the corresponding high level of responsibility attending that, we could say, relatively speaking, that the church is corrupt insofar as we fail to measure up to the responsibility of our calling. That's brutal. That's probably one of the most brutal things I've read as far as a statement on the church coming from uh, somebody I respect greatly, right? A, A giant of our faith. But as I, as I read this this week, I got to thinking about, um, you guys know about me, I'm kind of a news junkie, and so I've got my head in the headlines every day, re- just reading headlines. I uh, read a lot of news articles, but, but taking a lot of headlines. And, and the headlines that I tend to see about the church um, are, the, are having to do with sex abuse scandals. Right? The, the SBC just had a very public thing happen about sex abuse among their ranks that, that made a lot of headlines. Uh, I see headlines often about uh, bully pastors, names that you would know if I started to throw out names, guys that have written books, guys that are prolific uh, podcasters on the internet whose messages are easily accessible, and there have been some that have been removed from their positions just because they're jerks. Those things make the headlines. We see a lot of... uh, I'm going to coin a phrase, maybe, pastorpreneurs that are out there, kind of entrepreneurial-type pastors, right? Because we have kind of this fundamental misunderstanding of, of the role of a pastor. But, but especially in, you know, larger areas and in larger churches, pastors are expected to be entrepreneurial and, and business-minded. And those things aren't bad in and of themselves, but it's not necessarily the calling of a pastor, if we, if we read our Bibles clearly. And we see some kind of ensuing problems from this mindset of pastorpreneurs. Um, we see uh, in a lot of churches an entertainment culture, and again, not, not bad in and of itself. We, we all like to be entertained, and, and you know, there's a sense in which you know, God has given us good gifts for our enjoyment and for our pleasure. But again, if we read our Bibles closely, we're not shown in the Bible that the church is meant to entertain. 
And, and so you put all these things together and, and, and many more, and it seems like you know, every day that there's these kind of headlines that, that tend to be discouraging. I, I shake my head a lot at some of these headlines I read, just thinking, like, how, how have we gotten here? And I don't, I don't mean to start off, like, we're going to end on a good note, so bear, bear with me. <laughs> I don't mean to start off with a rain cloud, but, but we'll, we'll get to the good stuff here in a moment. When I think about these kinds of things, I read this quote by R.C. Sproul, and I think, okay, maybe he's on to something here, right? Maybe this makes a little bit of sense. Sometimes I wonder, like, okay, given all of these things, like, what's the church going to look like? Like, this is the church as a whole, you know, here in the West. What's it going to look like in five years? What's it going to look like in ten years? Not, not, not to mention the headlines that talk about, like, the church is in decline. Church attendance is in decline. We, we live in a post-Christian society. And less people are attending church than ever before here in the West. That's discouraging. Right? We, we show up every week hoping that more people are here this week than we're here next week or last week. And we hope next week that there will be more people. Right? We, we preach the Bible in the hopes that that's going to draw people in, that, that Christ would compel. And society more and more is rejecting Christ. They always have, but, but it just seems more and more uh, we're moving farther and farther and farther away from Christianity. And it's super, super discouraging in some ways. There, there are days where there's, there's lots of encouragement. Again, I don't, I'm not trying to start off with a rain cloud here, but these things, they start to add up and you start to think about it and, and you just wonder, like, what's going on here? Our, our world needs the message of the gospel more than it ever has. Yet more and more people are indifferent to or flat out rejecting the message of the gospel. I had a conversation with a colleague this week, and it was a brief conversation, um, but somebody who would profess to be uh, an, an agnostic. And they were bringing up just the fact of, of just the blunders of the church throughout history. And the things that have been done in the name of Christ by the church and horrible you know, wars and horrible things that have been perpetrated. It just was interesting that that conversation came up this week as this was on my mind. But in spite of all these things, we, we do have some hope, right? As I mentioned before, one of the beautiful things about the church is that it's full of broken and flawed people and we can see Christ's redemptive work on display in the midst of the brokenness and in the midst of the flaws. And, and so we do have hope that we can hold on to. And that, that's what I want to give us today is some hope that, that even in spite of all of the brokenness in the church and all of the flaws in the church and all of the blunders that happen and the negative PR that the church seems to, to get these days, um, this is God's church. And it's going to make it till the end because our Bible tells us that the, that the church will not fail. Looking back to around the 300s, uh, you may or may not be familiar with the Council of Nicaea, but the Council of Nicaea defined the church with four words. The Council of Nicaea said that the church is one, that it's holy, that it's Catholic, little c Catholic, not big c Catholic, and apostolic. One holy Catholic apostolic church. One, meaning that, that the church of Christ is unified because that's the thing that we have in common. 
right? We've talked about before that if you scan the room, you might see people whose path you would never cross in life except that God has brought you together in the church, right? And, and that's one of the beauties of the church, that, that we may not have the same affinities in life, we may not have the same stations in life, status in life, but, but the church brings together people who might not naturally converge, right? It's a beautiful thing. And, and not only that, but, but you think about time and history, right? All of the people that, that like, were part of an institution that has existed for 2,000 years and will exist until the time that the Lord comes and we're all in heaven together. We're part of that. Right, not not just the here and the now. Like I, I think sometimes we don't tend to think about you know all those that have come before us, and all those that will come after us in the church. And, and we, we're, we're part of it for just kind of this much of history, right? Just a little bit of history um, in the here and the now. The church is holy. It may not seem like it, especially given all that I just said. But but the church is holy, holy in the sense that it's different that it's set apart, that it's in the world but called to live differently than the world, right? Jesus in his, what we call the high priestly prayer in John 17, says this as he's speaking to the Father. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Have you ever thought about why it is that when we become Christians that we don't just get beamed up? Ever thought about that? It would be so much simpler if that were the case, wouldn't it, right? We, we wouldn't deal with the brokenness and the flaws that, that we deal with. But, but we don't get beamed up the moment that we come to faith, and I'll talk more about this in a minute. But there's a reason that God has left us here on earth. And Jesus' prayer to the Father is not necessarily to beam them up, but to keep them from the evil one. He goes on to say that they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. He prays to the Father and says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. We'll talk about being sent more in a moment. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. What I want to take away for just a moment here is that, like, it's the plan that we're here in the world. It's God's plan that we're here in the world. It's God's purpose that the church exists in the world. And as much as it's a true statement that there have been some horrible things committed by the church in the name of Christ throughout time and history, the church has also done a lot of good in the world. And we don't have time to get into that today, but the church has done a lot of good in the world. But we're not here just to do good in the world. We're here with a message, and Pastor David's track over the summer has been about our evangelistic efforts and the purpose and the importance of those things in the life of the Christian. So the church is one. It's a, unif- a unified group of people throughout time and throughout history. It's holy in the world, but not of the world, on purpose, with intention on God's part. The church is Catholic, little c Catholic, not, not Roman Catholic, but Catholic in the sense of being universal, right? That's just, it's a word that means universal. So the church is universal over all times and all places. The things that divide us in society should not divide us in the church. And if you think about like what kind of things divide us in society, um, we're divided by gender, we're divided by race, we're divided by our economic status, we're divided by 
our vocations. We're divided by our politics. We're divided by a lot of things in society, right? The universal church, right, the Bible tells us that those things don't exist in the church. There's no dividing lines like there are in society within the church. We're all universal, one and the same. It's worth mentioning, since it's a bit of an issue these days, the idea of the Catholicity of the church shoots holes in the commingling of our faith and our politics. And I'll talk more about that in a minute as well. I'm not saying our politics are unimportant, but, but I am saying that conservatism is not one and the same with Christianity. Right? The church is, is universal, has existed throughout time and history more than just the here and the now. And while we have our issues that we deal with today, the church dealt with yesterday, maybe a different set of issues, and tomorrow we'll deal with yet a different set of things uh, that cause divide. But the Council of Nicaea was on to something in the church being one and the church being holy, the church being Catholic, and the church being apostolic. Apostolic meaning that we're sent. We're sent to proclaim. Right? The Bible has, has the office of apostle, big A apostles. The Bible gives us the gift of apostles, little a apostles in the church, but the council at Nicaea in the 300 said that the church as a whole is apostolic, meaning we're sent into the world. And we're sent with a message to proclaim. Again, in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, uh, verse 20 to 22, he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Again, this shows us that like, there's, there's a plan. There's a plan and a purpose for the church to exist in the world so that we could continue the work of Christ after he's gone from this world. He again talks about that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Right? We, we are here for a purpose in the world. And this is why the church will be preserved, is because God has a plan and God has a purpose and it's not up to us. If it were up to us, I mean, those negative headlines, that's what happens when it's up to us, right? We'll, we bungle it, but, but it's not up to us. God has a purpose and a plan for the existence of the church here in the world. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, something we're probably all very familiar with. Jesus came to them, his disciples, saying to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's a big statement. That's a big statement that Jesus, I don't know if you ever, we, we kind of skip over that, but that's a big statement that Jesus says that all, not, not some, not most, but all, all authority, and not just on earth, but in heaven too, has been given to him. When somebody sets up what they're about to say with that, you better pay attention to what comes next, right? And here's what comes next. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always till the end of the age. This, again, is why the church will be preserved, because the person who instituted the church owns all of the authority that there is to be had. It's his. We, we see the mandate to go and to make disciples, 
And we're told that he, Jesus, will be with us. So the one who has all the authority that there is to be had, he's going to be with us in this endeavor. So, so that means that this endeavor won't fail. As much as we try sometimes to make it fail, it won't fail because of who gave the mandate, right? There's a growing message coming out of the church right now that says something along the lines of, so goes America, so goes the church. I hate that message. I love America, don't get me wrong, but I hate that message. Because, again, our endeavor will not fail because of who Christ is and what Christ has done. And I'm not saying that our politics are unimportant. They're, they're, they're not unimportant. They matter. But I think we're in this kind of cultural moment where we've commingled Christianity and conservatism and have put our hope more so in conservatism than in Christianity. I would love, I would love it if, if our Christianity was easy. I would love it if we didn't have any opposition to what we're doing. I would love it. I would love it if when we went to talk to people about who Christ is, that they would receive the message, and that there wouldn't be any pushback. I would love it if I didn't have to think that there might be a day coming where the government could crack down on what we're doing. I would love that. I hope that is the case. But the hope of the church is not that we maintain our rights. As much as I love my rights, right? I'm, Amer- I'm an American, don't tread on me. I love my rights. But the hope of the church is not that our rights will remain intact. The hope of the church is not that we'll have government approval or the favor of the world. The hope of the church is Jesus Christ. Amen. The hope of the church is the gospel that we proclaim that the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the creator of all things, has, has made a plan to deal with our brokenness and our sinfulness and our flaws. That's the hope of the church. And honestly, if we, if we read our Bibles closely, we'll see that the church spread most prolifically, not when things were easy, but when there was persecution, Right? I don't want persecution. I don't like persecution. I do a lot of things in my life to avoid persecution. But when you read the Bible, you see that the thing that caused the church to spread was when they were under somebody's thumb. Do, do with that what you will. If we look at Acts chapter 9, we see that the Jews were plotting to kill Paul. Right? We, we know the Apostle Paul's story, that he was a persecutor of the church, and he had an encounter with Christ, and his life changed forever. And the one who persecuted the church became the greatest proponent for the church, probably that we see in all of the Bible. And not long after his conversion, we see that there were threats against his life. And in Acts chapter 9, he fled a town for fear of his life. They had to lower him down a basket through a window in the middle of the night. Matter of fact, there was a moment in Paul's ministry where he got caught proclaiming the gospel. And you know what they did to him? They drug him outside of town and they stoned him. They threw rocks at him in an effort to kill him. There's some debate whether he actually died and, and, and God brought him back to life or he was just near death. But either way, you know what he did? He got up and he went back and he continued to proclaim the gospel. That's crazy. If that happened to me, I might say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to go down the road a ways. 
right? Maybe go far down the road, but Paul's like, nope, I got work to do. I'm going to go back. When his life was being threatened, we, we don't see in the Bible Paul complaining about his rights. We don't see Paul complaining about his freedom. Matter of fact, a large chunk of the New Testament was written by Paul from prison. And you don't ever see Paul in his writing saying, pray that I get out of prison. Pray that I find favor with the courts. Paul's like, I'm in prison. You know what? There's people in prison that need to hear about Jesus. So I'm going to tell people about Christ in prison. That, that was Paul. Acts 9.31, in the midst of all of this, says that the church throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it shrank. No, it multiplied. It multiplied in the midst of this. They had peace in the midst of being taken to prison. They had peace in the midst of threats against their life. They had peace. That blows my mind. Like if, my, if my life were threatened, I might not sleep at night. But they had peace. The church was being built up, and the church multiplied, and they were walking not, not in the fear of the government, not in the fear of mankind, not in the fear of what might happen to them if they kept talking, but they walked in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, knowing that if they kept talking, it wasn't going to go well. And again, reading our Bibles closely, we see that in some sense it didn't go well because the church was persecuted. You think about Hebrews chapter 11, right? The, the hall of fame of faith, as we call it. And in the hall of fame of faith in Hebrews 11, it talks about some saints who shut the mouths of lions and they were mighty in war and, and with the sword they put armies to flight. And that's cool. But we also read about this other group of saints who lived destitute. And they had to wander around in the sheep, uh, in the skin of, of sheep to, to hide themselves. And they lived in caves. And it says some of them for their faith were sawn in two. Now, today, if we were to get sawn in two, like we have ingenuity, that it might be quick. Back then, when they got sawn in two, it was probably a rock or a bone, and it wasn't quick. It was brutal. And these people are commended for their faith. And these people didn't, didn't squawk at all about their rights being under attack. And I guess I, I'm not trying to be up on a soapbox here today on this, but the church has a message. The church has, has a message. The apostolic church is left in the world on purpose by God's design. There's not a moment in heaven where God's sitting here scratching his head thinking, okay, how are we going to get the courts to change or the government to change or how are we going to get people to be more accepting? No. The church in the world is here by God's plan and by his design and it will be here until the end. And the commingling of our conservatism and our faith at the end of the day is nothing more than a false gospel. We have the real and the true gospel given to us by Christ, mandated to us by Christ to go into the world and proclaim the forgiveness of sins. Not, not an easy life full of rights and favor. And again, I, I love my rights. I hope they last. But my hope is not in what I have the right to do. 
My, my hope is in that Christ is real. And my hope is that when he comes, that I'll be found in him. And my hope is that I'm going to spend eternity with him because I'm a Christian. That's my hope. That's the message that we have. So, some bad news because of the church, like we seem to be off, off the rails in a lot of ways these days. But, in spite of that, in spite of our brokenness, in spite of our flaws, Christ is with us and he'll be with us till the end of the age. He's not going to give up on the church in all of its flaws. I might do that. You might do that. Right? There might come a point where we just throw our hands up and say, you know what, like this thing is lost and it's not coming back. But, but Christ is with us to the end of the age. I think about Matthew 16. Passage of Scripture you might be familiar with says that when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, who up to this point has been less than impressive, he replied and he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, Peter's not been that impressive of a guy up to this point. He's got a lot of things wrong, but he gets something right here in his profession of faith. You, Jesus, are the Christ. Right? Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title, right? the Messiah. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And when Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church, he's not building his church on Peter. So some people liken this even to the Pope in Roman Catholicism, and Jesus isn't building his church on the Pope. The rock that the church is built upon is the profession of faith that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's, that's the rock that the church is built upon. And because that's the rock that the church is built upon, Jesus himself, the owner of the church, the one who has all authority that's been given to him on heaven and on earth, says that that church will not fail. Even if it's kind of messed up, even if it's broken, it will not fail. Peter's profession of faith was not something that Peter just deducted in his own life. Peter didn't put his brain power to work and figure out, okay, Jesus is the Christ. We're told by Jesus that it's the Father who revealed that to Peter. It's the Father who revealed it to Peter, not Peter who figured it out, right? And, and we could spend some time talking about this, but we, we don't have time to delve fully into this today. But your faith, just so you know, is you, you didn't create your faith. Your faith has been granted to you by God. Your blindness has been, sight has been restored to you by God. And he's the one building his church. John six twenty five to 40, a little bit of a long passage, but 
Jesus had been out doing his thing, and, and he fed a bunch of people with just a little bit of food, one, one of the recorded miracles of Jesus. And John six twenty five it says, When they found him on the other side of the sea, Jesus was trying to get away from the crowd. They said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. And they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That you believe in him who he has sent is not your work, but it's God's work in you. This is another reason that the church will be preserved because God's work, not mine. And after he had fed all these people with just a little bit of food, it says that they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? I, I laugh at this because he just did a sign, right? And they're like, what's your next trick so that we can believe? Or what work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. It's Jesus who brings the dead to life. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And just a quick read of this shows that, that we don't do a whole lot here. We don't do anything here. God does everything. He's the bread. He's the life. He brings the life to dead. He feeds. He raises up on the last day. And so the preservation of the church is dependent not upon us getting it right, not saying that we shouldn't work at it, but, but at the end of the day, it's dependent upon who Christ is, what he's done, what he said he's going to do. And remember, he's the one that, that has all the authority on heaven and on earth, so I think there's a pretty good chance that he's going to come through. <laughs> it's a pretty good chance he's going to do what he said he's going to do, right? Hebrews chapter 12 since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, the, the hall of fame of faith in Hebrews 11, the ones that set armies to flight and the ones that were sawn in two, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The church will be preserved because he's the author of our faith. He's the perfecter of our flawed faith. Right? He gives us 
faith, we mess it up, he perfects it. One final quote for you from, again, Archibald Brown. He was a successor to Charles Spurgeon. Quote Spurgeon a lot here. We like Spurgeon. But Archibald Brown, his successor, said this, The church does not rest on man or any number of men. And if the day should come when a faithful man will be so scarce that you will have to hunt for him, and there should be apostasy on the right hand and on the left, and the pillars of the church give way on every hand, and it seems dark beyond all power of exaggeration, even in that day, the Lord will say unto his people, I bear the pillars of it. My church is not dependent upon man. Thank God for that. Because we we see what happens when it is dependent upon man. So at the end of the day, we can rest in the fact that the Christian church is preserved because the Christian perseveres. And the Christian perseveres because the Christ has secured the victory with his life, with his death, with his resurrection. This is all his work. And so I hope, even though we started with a bit of a rain cloud, that we're encouraged by the end that that Christ is not going to let this thing fail. He's not going to let it fail. I started in this series encouraging you with Paul's encouragement to the Corinthian church, the 14th chapter of his first letter, where he tells them to strive to excel in building up the church. He's talking to them about how they've kind of bungled their church and kind of off the rails when it comes to spiritual gifts. They're not, they're kind of messing some things up. And he tells them that if you really are eager to see a manifestation of the spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. And I'll end these four sermons with the same encouragement to all of us that we would make it our endeavor to see a manifestation of the Holy Spirit in that we would strive to excel at building up the church because it's not going anywhere. It's here till the end. It will not fail. And so be encouraged by that. We get to share communion today as we do on the last Sunday of each month because the gospel is true, right? Because the church will not fail, right? And and we, we have sacraments of the church that we share in as a reminder of Christ's shed blood, of his broken body, of Christ for us, his work, his preservation of the saints. Right? We, we celebrate that when we take communion. So it's more than drinking a little drink and eating a little morsel of food. We're reminded of Christ for us as we participate in the body and the blood of Christ because we believe the gospel to be true. We believe that Christ has done what he's done. Uh, we believe that it's true. We believe that it's this message that we have to take to the world. And this is our reminder today of that truth. Oh yeah, Christ died for me. Christ shed his blood for me, his body broken for me because I'm a broken and flawed sinner and he's the perfect sacrifice. And it's a beautiful thing that we get to do this. And so uh, as the music's playing, when Leah comes up in a moment, you can just come up and get communion on your own and go back to your seat and uh, share it on your own. Um, and be reminded of the truth of the gospel of what Christ has done for us. Father, we're thankful this morning. Thankful that the gospel is true. Thankful that 
It's your responsibility to build and preserve the church and not ours. Thankful that you have been given all authority and we can rest in that. Thankful that you're good to us. Thankful that in spite of our brokenness and in spite of our flaws that you continue to love us and you continue uh, to build your church. And so I would pray for us today that we would be reminded of that truth, perhaps in a way that, that we haven't thought about it before. Pray that you would help us um, as one holy Catholic apostolic church to understand our purpose in the world as Christians. And we would be so bold today as to pray, God, that like you did in the early church, that you might add to our numbers, even on a daily basis, those who are coming to faith in Christ. We know that you can, and we ask that you will. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.